0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Felipe Dovelle about gender and sexuality. We talk about things like what is sex, what is gender, what does it mean for gender to be a social construct, is that true, how should Christians think about this topic, what did people like Augustine or Gregory of Nyssa have to say about the topic. As always, if you have thoughts or, about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at now, for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our l- listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, uh, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today, I'm really excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine, uh, Felipe And uh, I think I pronounced that right because he put it in his Twitter on how to pronounce it. So I practiced it a couple times beforehand. Uh, I was first introduced to his work through an article that he put in uh, Phil Christie um, on if, I guess, on gender and sexuality topics and and Jesus as as being masculine, what does that mean for salvation? And I think we'll talk a little bit about that in, in the episode as we go on. But he's done a lot of work on gender and sexuality, a lot of really interesting work and obviously, this is a hot topic in our culture at large. So thinking deeply with the Christian tradition and what they have thought and what they have said uh, is really, really important, I think. So I'm looking forward to talking to you, Felipe, and learning from you. Uh, for those of our listeners who have no idea who you are, which I don't know, we have a lot of different range of listeners. We've got people who, who are pastors. We've got people who are students. we got some people who are professors. Some are going to be familiar with you, but there's probably a good chance that there's people like brandon's grandma who listens faithfully who, who has no idea who you are so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself sorry brandon's grandma i didn't mean to single you out uh, she thinks
1: it's funny <laughs> when you bring her up so it's okay
0: yeah. <laughs> i don't know why you know it's like brandon's grandma is the the, the person i always want to yeah she'll love that that's good well she's getting a shout out another one um but anyway felipe tell us a little bit about yourself um you know, maybe your family, what you do, what you like to do on the weekends, and why you got interested in this particular topic.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege. Um, I am Felipe Doveil. I am finishing up a PhD in systematic theology at Southern Methodist University down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, as we record, it's August and it's pretty hot down here. And, you know, what is what it is. Uh, I was born in Brazil. Uh, and came to the States when I was young. Uh, I did all of my education here in the States. I did my undergrad at Calvin College, although it's now Calvin University. I did it in philosophy and gender studies. Then I went on to do a uh, Master of Arts in Systematic Theology and Church History at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, I really got interested in in gender and theology. It was at Calvin. I took a philosophy of gender class and some of the topics that were introduced I found really interesting, and I was surprised by the, I guess, the the little theological interaction that was yeah. being done with those questions. And so I thought, well, you know, it seems like something that's really important. All the church people I talk to seem to think it's really important, but don't have a lot of resources to turn to when it comes to so that. Well, if there aren't any resources out there, let's start getting some out there. So. So I got interested in it and haven't really looked back since. There there are days that I wish I wasn't interested in it. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's something that's uh, I've grown to be really passionate about.
1: That's awesome. Very yeah. cool. Um, so Felipe, I guess the best way to approach this is to start with some definitions. Um, so if you don't mind, maybe define whatever you deem as, as key terms to this discussion, sex, gender, male, female, man, woman, um, whatever definitions that you think we need to have in place to be able to have this discussion.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really, it's a tricky question because often in defining these terms, one betrays the positions one already holds about these Mm -hmm. things. And ideally you would want to argue for those positions, but maybe what I can begin with is just giving you the the lay of the land or something like how these terms are typically talked about in the literature. Um, You might begin with the term sex. Now, the term sex typically refers to those biological traits whether those are genotypical traits or phenotypical traits, if you want like a nice biology word, uh, that differentiate males from females. So Uh, The terms relevant to sex categories are male and female rather than man or woman. So these sex terms differentiate biological males from biological females and so forth. Now, the term gender, however, refers to something different. Well, typically refers to something different. Mm -hmm. Typically, gender is seen as a social construct. Now, this is the consensus view among the majority of philosophers, theologians, sociologists most theorists who talk about this stuff think that gender is a social construct with some exceptions of course uh, it's also assumed in certain legal decisions like if uh, if you saw earlier this summer uh, the country of Hungary came to certain legal decisions about sex and gender and they assumed that gender was a something that's socially expressed rather than biologically determined. so it, it's out there in the world basically uh, and it's actually not just one view either. It's more of a, a family of views. But if you want like a real simple thumbtack definition, you might say that to say that gender is a social construct is to say that it's defined by those traits set by a culture's expectations, assigned roles, performances, and so on that define or make someone a man or a woman. Mm. So Instead of male or female, here the terms are man or woman. Sometimes a further requirement is that these roles and expectations supervene upon having a certain sex body, or at least being perceived as having a certain sex body. But the idea is that whereas sex refers to some biological designations, gender will refer to some certain kinds of social designations. But there's also, so that's the majority view. The majority view is that gender is a social construct but what if you're not a social constructionist about gender? How else do other people talk about it? Well, you might be forgiven for thinking that the only other option to define gender is to be what people call a biological essentialist. What's a biological essentialist? This is somebody who takes the definition in the other direction. For a biological essentialist, gender just is sex. Or perhaps gender is something more like the claim that says all gendered behavior is caused by or read off of somehow somebody's sex. Uh, In other words, the biological equipment entails the gendered behavior that you see in society. Now it's not as popular to see this in academic literature, but Mm -hmm. you will see this view, for instance, in in popular books that you may have heard of like men are from Mars and women are from Venus or another very popular one called uh, why men don't iron. Uh, and the spoiler alert: the answer is because they have certain sort of biological features to them. That's why they oh. don't iron. Yeah. Uh, but if you want an academic who holds this view, it'd be somebody like Steven Pinker, who's a evolutionary psychologist at Harvard. Um, he holds to something like a biological essentialist view. But if you want to define gender, typically, and, and this is I mean, I'm print, painting with very wide brushstrokes here, obviously, but it seems like there are only two options. One is to be a social constructionist. The other is to be a, a biological essentialist. That's kind of the lay of the land. If I had to, if I had to do it in like a, a drive-by tour. Oh, that's really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you, it seems like you, you said social gender being a social construct is the prevailing view. Uh, was it always that way? And if if not, when did it switch? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, it, it
2: obviously wasn't always that way. Uh, for a long time, there was this, this epistemic principle that a lot of people worked with. And you can kind of trace this back to Aristotle even, that whatever is perceived to be universal is, perceived, is also perceived to be natural. So whatever is universally mm-hmm. true is also naturally true. right? So it was kind of an uncontroversial thesis to say, because all women are this way, or all men are this way, Therefore, it is natural for all women and all men to be this way. So, uh, if you want an example, is Horace Bushnell, who was an American theologian famous for some other stuff. Uh, he actually wrote a book about this where he defended this thesis, and he said, "All things that you perceive to be universal, well, all you need to do is look around. That's what you, That's what's natural." But around, I mean, the earliest I can find somebody challenging this assumption is a guy named Francois Pauline de labar who is a Calvinist Cartesian philosopher, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and he was the first that I can trace the the idea that gender is socially concerned He challenged that that premise that what is perceived to be natural is perceived is universal, and he gives all kinds of counterexamples and says, "Well, it could have been universal, but it could have been brought about by some other means instead of natural." In what
1: years would he have been active?
2: Seventeenth century, uh, okay. just after Descartes.
1: Okay, okay, yeah. that's
2: interesting. But then you've, you the view is refined by people like John Stuart Mill. Simone de Beauvoir, although there's some controversy whether she actually held that view, but really, you know, it picked up its steam in the 60s, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. Hmm.
0: So maybe maybe this is an interesting case study in this. You've got a paper that I read that kind of compares and contrasts Augustine's view versus Gregory of Nyssa's view on Mm -hmm. gender and sexuality, especially whether we have, I guess, sex and gender in heaven. Mm -hmm. So. It's interesting that it seems Augustine saying that I guess gender is essential. You can you can tell me if I'm wrong and how I'm understanding this. And this is saying no, it's not. Um, are are people who are going the route saying gender is a social construct saying drawing from people like Nissa, or or is this completely unrelated?
2: Yeah, there's a tangle of questions for sure there. Because <laughs> really, I mean, there's there's debate about how best to read Nissa.
0: Mm.
2: You know, um, you know, so though some folks who are interested in recovering his thought for certain views might emphasize certain aspects of his using versus others. Um, I'm of the mind that honestly, like there's no real getting around his Platonism. He was a pretty platonic uh theologian, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, but yeah. you know, it's going to challenge his compatibility with certain other kinds of views. Um, the question really is essential to what, and what do we mean by essentialism? Mm. Right. And that's something that I'm trying to do in my current work is, honestly, there's a lot of murkiness that attends to the question of gender essentialism. You know, sometimes the the word essentialism is conflated with biological essentialism. So the idea being that if you're an essentialist about gender, you have to be a biological essentialist about gender. But that that's not true. I mean, there's examples that I try to cite of people who argue that there are a greater variety of essentialisms available. Um, Sometimes the word essentialist is also just kind of used as a as a a, a mean name to call somebody. You know? uh, like if if you hold to an essentialist view, like you should start getting nervous. Who wants to be an essentialist? You know? But what I'm trying to do in, in my current work is really sharpen and refine the metaphysical uh, conditions for what it means to be an essentialist. I mean, I try yeah. to do that in some of the probably some of the articles you've seen. Um, but asking the question, was Augustine an essentialist, wasn't an essentialist? It really depends. Like what, what do we mean by
0: that? Um, so maybe I know that paper that I think I mentioned at the beginning, mm-hmm. I think the title is what, Can a Male Savior Save Women? Mm-hmm. And in that, you draw a distinction between kind essentialism and, and mm-hmm. individual essentialism. Yeah. So maybe you talk to those two understandings of essentialism and just say, what are these and how would it apply to this topic?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so there are two different kinds of of essentialism. There's kind essentialism yeah. and individual essentialism, and this is kind of just generally true about essentialist literature broadly speaking. You know, so you you'll associate kind essentialism. Uh, that's a very old idea. Individual essentialism is associated with people like Saul Kripke, Alvin Plantinga, those oh. guys who've written about individual essentialism. But that idea goes back a long time too. So. Just to, I mean, there there are two different ways that to talk about gender essentialism that are helpful. The other two ways that I mentioned, name calling and biological essentialism, I don't want to I don't want to retrieve those. But what are the the helpful kinds of essentialism? Uh, kind essentialism is the view that there is a property or set of properties definitive of a gender kind or just of a gender, such that bearing that property or properties is sufficient for membership in that kind, right? Now, those properties may be biological properties, they may be social properties, or they may be a mix of both. But this is a very basic, fundamental kind of essentialism that just says there are some stable conditions for what it means to be a man or a woman, and those conditions are necessary and jointly sufficient for being either a man or a woman or you know, however many genders. The, And I think, honestly, this is kind of a default position for a lot of people who... Um, Think about gender, but even if it's not necessarily spelled out in that way, because really the alternative to being a kind essentialism about gender is to hold a position that's referred to in the literature as gender skepticism. and gender skepticism is uh, is not the view that we don't know what gender is. That's that's a different view. The, the gender skepticism is is the view that says that gender terms have no stable meaning, mm. have no no um, definite meaning right? If you want examples of this, uh, Judith Butler is an example of a, of a, a gender skeptic. Uh, and if, if you are a gender skeptic, you'd say then those, there are no stable conditions that constitute the necessary and sufficient conditions for gender kinds. So what does it mean to be a man or a woman? There's no stable meaning to that question. Yeah. And so that's, so kind essentialism is just the denial of that view, I think. Okay. Um, so if that's, if that, make, that's yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense um and so that's one kind of essentialism the other essentialism is individual essentialism and this is the position that uh your gender is in is necessary or essential to you being the very person or self that you are or right? such that if you lacked your gender you would be a different person or self yeah it's, uh in, in the same way that people like Kripke and plan talk about essences uh the example i like to give uh students and so forth is doctor who you guys doctor who fans um
0: i, I mean i know doctor <laughs> who i don't know if i uh, call me a fan I, yeah. I had a roommate in in seminary who liked it <laughs> <laughs> that's fair about enough. the extent of my experience fair
2: enough, fair enough well so doctor who is uh is this alien being, right who yeah. regenerates and every time doctor who regenerates doctor who has a new body um mm-hmm. And in the first to the 12th doctors, were all males and all men, but the 13th doctor regenerated as a woman. And so the question then becomes, is the 13th doctor the very same person or very same individual as doctors one through 12? An individual essentialist about gender will say, uh, no, that is a yeah. different individual because the doctor's gender is individually essential to that, to that being those doctors and so forth, Right. So that's individual essentialism about gender. I'm on the fence about that one. I think oh. kind essentialism is necessary for avoiding gender skepticism, which is, I think, a position that's uh, morally problematic as well as theoretically problematic. Because if we, if there aren't any stable meanings to gender terms, then how do we identify when uh, certain injustices are perpetrated specifically toward a particular gender, for instance? Mm-hmm. Um if you um, in this is kind of i mean there are most i think feminist theorists and so forth that i read will agree with this they'll say if there is no stable category of what a woman is how can you be a feminist right
0: yeah like,
2: judith butler tries to get around that in certain ways and so do some other people but i think gender kind essentialism though that's not necessarily the same thing as biological essentialism because the conditions don't necessarily have to be biological ones is is a, a view that i think is Certainly, Christians should hold to it. Uh, individual essentialism yep. isn't so. Gregory of Nyssa would not be an individual essentialism yeah. essentialist, for instance, because he thinks you can lose your gender and be the same person that you are. Mm. Yeah. So it's, I've compli- complicated everything, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I guess let's just take it maybe more more deeply into the into the realm of of Christianity. So how? and This is a really broad question, but how should Christians best think about these issues? And and maybe, you know, cause this, this has, as you already mentioned, it has, this has far reaching implications, you know, to morality and a lot of different uh, social debates and things like that. And uh, this is an issue right now, um, obviously that is uh, a, a huge issue in, in our society. So this is something that Christians who are living in, in our society should have some kind of informed opinion on. So help us think through how Christians should, uh, best understand uh, these discussions
0: yeah and if i might add i mean even i i myself sometimes feel torn o- on this topic because i mm-hmm. i i see the appeal of gender being a social construct because i don't mm-hmm. think i want to say that like to be a man i have to necessarily like chopping wood outside or, or mm-hmm. whatever that may be and i'm not sure mm-hmm. how to put that together because i are. do see some people who are you know I would think are more traditional when it comes to sex and gender. Mm-hmm. And then they go that route where men have mm-hmm. to do X, Y, and Z to be a man. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's a way to parse out the distinction between this gen- ontological understanding of gender in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. that's
1: more metaphysical. And then this gender that's more like doing stuff. And I guess this goes into how much of that, because you mentioned earlier, there's like, there could be a mixture between like biological and social. and And so how it seems like a lot of, well, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to push too far, but it seems like some people are are making it so much. They, they're they're heaping so much social stuff on there to what it means to be uh, a man that, you know, really what what it seems like is their definition of manhood is, is really um, American. And uh, yeah. yeah I, I don't know. So just help us think through it, because it, yeah. it really is hard because uh, you don't want to just throw out. Yeah, the concept of 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 gender being essential, but then you also don't want to heap on all these, uh, you know, social requirements, and then say you have to do this to be a man. So,
2: yeah, yeah, that those are great questions. Um, and I care deeply about, I think, the overarching care question of like, how should Christians, not just like Christian theologians, but everyday Christians, are yeah. going out of church every Sunday morning, or tune into church on Skype these days. Um, uh, <laughs> how do they think about this stuff? Like, how, you know, how does Brandon's grandma think about this stuff? Start, start out again,
1: yeah, she'll <laughs> love this episode.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: so one of the issues, I think, so I'm going to bracket for a second the theoretical side of this, because I have a lot to say about that too. But one of the issues that's been making this question so problematic is the paucity of concepts and categories available to Christians for thinking about these things. In other words, there's just a, a, a poverty of resources and theological equipment that have been offered to Christians to think about these things. So here's what I mean by that. Often what happens is that you have two different kinds of uh, folks who are, who are doing theology. Either they uh, really care about gender and they really want to focus on gender really well. And they want to give earnest and clear accounts of gender. But then they forsake all of the sorts of recognizable theological virtues uh, that would be aptly suited for guiding theological work. Right. So they talk about gender, but they get rid of all the theological methodology, things like scriptural like exegesis, retrieval of historical figures, wherein it's appropriate and so forth. On the other side of things, you have people who exemplify uh theological work really nicely but when they start talking about gender they start it's only in an awkward and sort of suspicious sort of way now again i'm painting with very broad brush yeah. there obviously eggs ex- ex- uh, exemptions to this but typically what we see is the folks who are really good at theology get really nervous around gender you know what i mean and they start feeling like the tools that they have cultivated for so long are ill-suited to tackle a question such as this. Now, what I'm trying to do in my work is to, is to challenge that and to say that the tools we have as theologians uh, are well-equipped. The gospel itself is well-equipped to give us uh, the sorts of resources that we need for guidance on this stuff. Uh, One of my theological heroes, Beth Fulker Jones, she says, good theology is just good gendered theology. You know, there's confidence in our tools to do the work that we need them to do. Hmm. Now, that's easier said than done, obviously. And it takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of work figuring out who to read and how to understand these things and having a lot of clarity about what the gospel actually is, too. Uh, but what often happens for everyday Christians, and this is this is where I start getting really passionate is instead of the, they'll see stuff on the news, for instance, and they'll get start getting really nervous about the sorts of ways that the culture is. going. So the, this the homogenous culture is going. And so they think that the only response is to kind of bunker up and to engage in a kind of culture war. You know, and uh, instead of and basically you pick your side and then you vilify the other side, you know, yeah. and that's not a good option, because the first way to for Christians to start thinking about gender, I think, is to think about think about it like Christ might think about it with a Christlike character, with kindness, compassion, tenderheartedness, And you can't make an exception to those things. When it comes to political topics, you know, oftentimes I find that Christians want to talk about politics or political topics like gender without any kind of political theology, you know. And so they kind of hitch their wagon to the to the most attractive political ideology on offer and put all their hope in that. But that's equally just another way of of jettisoning the sorts of tools that Christians should have when it comes to difficult topics. So here's how Christians should think about it, I think. Just everyday Christians be sure-footed in the gospel and recognize when you are engaging in a sort of political ideology and making that into an idol, you know, or, or realize that gender is one of those topics that requires a lot of careful thought. Um, it's not going to be something that we come to an answer very quickly because it's such a convoluted issue. Um, but really, be sure footed in the tools of theology, be sure footed in the gospel, and see how the great sweep of divine action of how God has created, redeemed us, sustained us, and perfected us. See how gender is implicated in that great narrative of the gospel. Um, and then, uh, so, so much more practical advice perhaps might be this read people that you disagree with. Uh, sometimes it's surprising to me how folks will just, you know, keep it at arm's length, people who they think will uh, challenge them or who might um, call into question some of the assumptions they may have. But read people you disagree with and don't just read them just to write them off, read them charitably, read them hospitably and with an openness to learning from them. Uh, And really, it's no one is hundred percent wrong right it would be an, an amazing feat to only utter falsehoods you know <laughs> yeah uh, so so i would encourage people read read challenging authors read feminist authors um because sometimes they, they offer categories that are super helpful for the church to think about these things uh and it's, it's funny to me sometimes how certain theologians are interested in talking about gender but then they'll only read people like Turretin and Bovink. Now, I love Turretin and Bovink. Those, those guys are great, but they don't cut it for talking about gender. <laughs> they, don't, they don't cut it alone for talking about gender. You know, you got to read the people that are, that are more broadly like cast a wider net, in other words. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just everyday Christians do that. You know, yeah. be aware of when you're hitching your wagon to a political ideology um, because yeah. it, it happens all the time, but also like broaden your horizons, read as much as possible.
1: Well, I guess this would be a good time to ask you about maybe some resources that you think would be good for whether this be for um a layperson or a pastor, really anybody who wants to get into these things. Um yeah. and, and maybe resources from from all different sides um that you think people mm-hmm. should use as an entry point into thinking more deeply about this.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, so with if with theology, so some theologians that are really helpful to read. One is uh, Elaine Storky, and her book is called Origins of Difference, The Gender Debate Revisited. What I like about this book is that it really puts the the, the issues of contention on the table in a very clear and accessible way. So it, she writes in a very, she writes accessibly, but also with the know-how necessary to uh, engage the debates and the arguments in question, so Elaine Storkey's book is very helpful. Uh, it's I think it's better in terms of getting the issues on the table rather than setting a constructive response, but it's invaluable for just a one-stop shop for all of the different questions you that are that are live right now. Uh, another person that is just super valuable to read: Beth Felker Jones. Read anything she writes, but in particular. Uh, her, I think it's her published dissertation is called Marks of His Wounds, Gender Politics and Bodily Resurrection. Uh, it, this is an exemplary theological work when it comes to talking about gender. It's really the best I've seen. Uh, and finally, this is somebody that uh, we've talked about Nyssa a little bit. This is one of the people who's trying to recover Gregory of Nyssa's thought and probably one of the most inventive original theologians that I've ever read. I don't agree with everything she says, but she's absolutely brilliant. Sarah Coakley's work, God, Sexuality and the Self, an essay on the Trinity. Uh, She, I mean, nobody is doing what she's doing. It's incredible. It's very, very enriching. And some of the views that I'm trying to propose are in the neighborhood of what she's trying to say with a different angle. Um, But if your readers have a bit of philosophical uh, training, two books that are really helpful uh, are Mary Mikola. M a r i m i k k o l a. She's a Finnish philosopher. She wrote a book called the The Wrong of Injustice, and it's a super helpful book. I think it's there's no other book that's more helpful in, in providing the orienting categories. So some of the different kinds of essentialism that I discussed earlier, a lot of that stuff is laid out in her book, and it really it catches the reader up really well on the central issues at stake uh and then another one is charlotte Witt, the metaphysics of gender this is i think the best constructive account of gender that i've read and these are both feminist philosophers uh they're secular feminist philosophers and so you know your reader should be aware of that as well but they're super super helpful i mean they're i've gone back to those books regularly
1: right thank yeah, you that, that's yeah helpful. that's helpful so list.
0: maybe this is a question why is it that there are not more i guess traditional people in the christian tradition working on these issues because it seems like it's it's i mean i I don't have anything against feminists that's fine um i'm not a feminist so i'm just wondering why is it that only feminists are writing on the. i mean i know it's it's Mm -hmm. near and dear to their heart so they're gonna write on it but it seems Mm -hmm. like it'd be natural to have someone who's wanting to dig into the Christian tradition. And maybe that's why somewhat you're doing what you're doing. Mm. There's a big vacuum, but I'm just, is there a reason why that's the case?
2: Goodness. There's probably more than one reason. Uh, and I can't say what all of them are. Yeah. I mean, part of it is just the kind of thing gender is. It's kind of one of those things that people get nervous about when they talk about yeah. it because it's so easy to set one's foot uh, on the wrong path, you know, or to say something that, you know, you later get in trouble for saying. Uh, and so people kind of stay away from it. Um, no, it is it is really interesting because the, the one of the questions that I find to be challenging is, you know, where can you turn to in the Christian tradition to talk about, to, to see people who talk about gender in a really helpful way. Now, there's a lot in the early church, a lot of early church religions. But if you start looking at, you know, as things go on you see it talked about less and less is my mm-hmm. take on things in the 20th century you also have um especially in the united states the sort of intransigent debate between complementarians and egalitarians and so forth a debate that i think has taken us very not very far um, and and largely that's because of the concepts on offer you know the. It just hasn't offered us the sufficient tools to be clear about the questions, you know. Um, so there's a lot in in the pot as to why there aren't enough resources. on this. The other thing too is like you see a lot of people see the word feminist and they think, "Well, I got, that's bad stuff, and I don't want to stay away from that." The reality is, it, I mean, defining feminist is incredibly difficult. I mean, this is this has been shown to be true by all kinds of people, uh, such that. Simply calling somebody a feminist doesn't really tell you very much about what they actually think. Yeah, um, There are certain feminists who are essentialists. There are certain feminists who aren't. There are certain feminists who are biological essentialists, even. Certain feminists who are Christians, some who aren't. So really, it's it's a sort of like label creation that prevents people from accessing a lot of these questions, I think, a lot of the time. Um, but I really wish there were more. I i have love to to see more work done on this. And there is some, but it's certainly not as much as it could be.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any advice for pastors to maybe bring this down to a local church level mm-hmm. um how how pastors can um well number one think through these issues themselves but but shepherd um the flock through these issues. Um I don't know if you're a, a pastor or if you have any pastoral experience or if you've talked to pastors about this but mm-hmm. um you know there's no there's no avoiding this in you know 2020 United States or or, or Western world. I mean, there's just no way around this. So um, Mm -hmm. this is something that pastors are going to have to have an opinion on and going to have to have a way to walk their people through um, This kind of stuff. So just any pastoral advice um, would be, I think, valuable to a lot of our listeners. So, yeah,
0: I mean, I, I feel like I think back to all my pastor friends and I'm pretty sure every single one of them has had a church member at some point who's struggling with something like this. It's not just like conceptually like, hey, my friend out here, it's like me. I'm not sure if I'm a man or I'm not sure if I'm a woman. And it's just becoming more and more common.
1: Or, or just having a family member going through yeah. it, even if yeah. it's not a church member, you know, himself or herself. I mean, there, there, a lot of us know people who, who are going through these things, even if it's not um, something we're going through ourselves. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's crucial. And I think pastors have the added responsibility of modeling for the congregation, the kind of ways that kinds of ways that we want to see gender talked about. So there's mm-hmm. this kind of um, modeling of virtue that's necessary for pastors So I think the first thing to notice is for pastors to appreciate just how complicated these issues are. Now, one of the things, one of the temptations is when facing such a complex issue like gender to look for the nearest way out and to find the quickest answer and to kind of be and to to think, okay, so that's my answer. That's going to be it. I'm, you know, and that's how I'm going to talk to people about it. But gender is not one of those things. Gender is one of those things that's so intrinsic to so many people's understandings of who they are, of their stories. And it's not an uncomplicated component of their lives either. For so many people, their gender is something, is a task, is something they struggle with, right? Mm. Something that's maybe they don't themselves struggle with, but maybe other people treat them negatively in virtue of their gender, right? And so the first thing I think for pastors to do is to appreciate the complexity of it and then be compassionate with the people who are struggling with it. So one of the distinctions I like to make, and I've had some pastoral experience myself, it's mostly with youth, which has been, uh, which was very interesting to talk about yeah. stuff because I mean, it, it begins there, you know, with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Uh, the first thing to do is to distinguish between the things that we might think are morally wrong, right? And then how we should treat people who we perceive to have done something morally wrong. Mm-hmm right? Even if somebody is struggling and does something that we perceive to be wrong, does not entail that we should mistreat them because of it, right? Sometimes uh, the, the, the complexities of life are so significant that the best way to help somebody see these things from a Christian perspective is just to sit with them for a long, long time and mm-hmm. help them to understand, help them to understand themselves, help them to know that the church is a, a community of grace and, um, and that their worth is not established by their gender. Their worth is not established by anything other than their union with Christ. Right. Uh, so really, for pastors, the best thing to do, it's, it's I really should encourage pastors should have a sure footing in the philosophy and theology of this stuff and, and take some time to read it, of course. But there's also this moral social component of, of what they should be like. They should be they should model kindness should answer their congregants when they come with questions, with patience, gentleness, peace, charity, tenderheartedness, all of those things that Paul talks about, for instance. Mm-hmm. Because parishioners are going to be really struggling in a profound way with this, and it's only going to be more and more difficult. And be sensitive to the way that your answers will be received by parishioners. Um, because theres you might have the right answer, but you might deliver it in the wrong way. And there has been there have been so many testimonies of people, and I've heard them myself, uh, of people who are intersexed, people who struggle with same-sex attraction, who want to live a faithful Christian life, but have found it so hard because of the reaction that their church has had to their struggles, you know. Yeah. So uh, patience, compassion, that's really key. So it's a, so it's not so much about what you say, but how you say it sometimes, you know. So I really, I mean, I really encourage churches to be like that. I know that's, you know, not really hefty philosophical advice, but sometimes yeah. it's what we need, isn't it? So,
0: so maybe uh, it seems like this is definitely a theme in, in, in your thinking and your work is like actually cre- modeling and practicing virtues and how we talk mm-hmm. about these things. Uh, and that seems from what I read, the complete opposite of what I usually see. Um, So does this have anything to do with what your dissertation topic is on? I think from what I saw, it was titled like gender is love or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you mean by that? And does this practice of actually practicing the virtues have a lot to do with it?
2: Yes, it absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I kind of see myself and my work is at that juncture between theological anthropology and moral theology were those things. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of perennially interested in the sorts of complexities of being human, you know, like gender, race. But right now I'm working on gender and yes, I think love should characterize how we talk about gender, but I actually think gender that love uh, constitutes gender. And that's Mm -hmm. a very confusing thing to say until I I explain it (laughs) with a lot of categories, but if, if, to give you just a, 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 a overview of what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to provide a theological account of gender that attempts to move the conversation beyond some of the bifurcations that I that we talked about a, a few minutes ago. Move beyond the beyond the bifurcations of social construction and essence. Move beyond the bifurcations of theology or talk about gender. I want to say those things aren't incompatible. Here's why. And I, I spend some time. In my first chapter, talking about what does it even mean to give a theological account of gender? What, what differentiates a theological account from, say, a sociological account or something else? And I, and I provide some necessary conditions for doing so that I think are true. I draw on the work of John Webster there. I think mm-hmm. he really models really well uh, what makes theology theological, as he would say. And then I I spend some time on the social constructionist views. And I can if you want to hear the arguments as to why I think that view is is false, I can I can give those arguments to you. But I, I spend my second chapter. It's called Understanding the Social Construction of Gender. So here's what it is, here's some problems that I have with it. But then I say. But my denial of the social construction view does not mean that I'm affirming the biological essentialist view. I'm, a, I'm, I'm attempting to deny the bifurcation as a whole. I'm trying to provide something much more entangled and complex. In other words, I want to I say that there are more ways of being social than just by means of social construction, and there are more ways to care about the body than being a biological essentialist. So one of the ways I try to show that is by highlighting some of the latent assumptions that are operative in social constructionist accounts. And then the more traditional accounts is what they call themselves. So on the social constructionist accounts, oftentimes the body is reduced to a mere biological given from which no moral norms can be derived. Uh, It's just biological matter. Nothing normative comes from it. I don't think that's true. And on the flip side, on more traditional views who attempt to define Ah, uh, gender simply by means of something like an adult human male or something, something of that sort. It, it requires all social expressions of gender to be reduced to mere stereotype that are that are irrelevant to what what it actually means to be a gender. Yeah. And it's just so contrary to experience. You know, so often, like like you said, you know, I think that gender is an importantly social thing, and that human beings are importantly social in in certain ways. But, the, and I don't want to say that just like the, the the clothes I choose to wear are entirely irrelevant. You know, it's just, you may think it's gendered, but it's really not. That, that feels contrary to how people tend to talk about it. So I draw on uh, Charlotte Way and Mary Mikula, and I provide four uh, desiderata for for gender. If you want a good metaphysics of gender, this is how I think you should think about it. I give, the first one says, gender is an essence, is a kind essence though this is not reducible or the same thing as biological determinism or biological essentialism. The second is actually that the complexity of gender, the noetic effects of sin, and the current conditions of oppression actually complicate our epistemic access to gender's essence. And that really we won't be able to denote with clarity, completeness, and in f- fullness, those necessary conditions for gender until we are raised, until we are resurrected. Uh, I, draw, I do a little work with Hebrews 2, 8, 9, which says, uh, now in subjecting all things to Christ, God left nothing outside his control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus. So the idea that, the, that I think the author of Hebrews is commending to us is that though in point of fact Christ rules over all, we currently have difficulty seeing all things as ruled by christ and so there there is an epistemic uh limitation to our ability to see what is in point of fact true right which i think all christian theologians should affirm right we we are not omniscient um so though gender is an essence our epistemic access to gender's essence is complicated we get it wrong very often yeah. we always need to be correct and i also the, the last two theses i propose are that any theory or theology of gender must be consistent with or supportive of the cultivation of justice and love, and this is where the, the sort of virtue component comes in. Yeah. You know, oftentimes this is one of the criticisms I level against the social constructionist views that it makes gender morally unevaluable because if the conditions for being of a certain gender are confined to a certain context, then so are the moral norms attached to it. Mm-hmm. You can only evaluate them according to the quality of the, of the of the construction, not according to So there are no bad men or women or good men or women as such. And I tried to show that with certain case studies uh, in law and things like that. And finally, I say that gender is concerned with selves or identity and the way selves and organize social goods according to their sexed bodies. And this is where love comes in. Uh, I draw, as you may have already guessed, on Augustine on this. I'm I'm not defending Augustine's view of gender. I'm defending his view of love. Uh, I think his view of gender is really complicated and has some enduring problems. But his view of human love is very interesting. Um, And I try to tap into something that you often hear said, but hasn't been given a lot of philosophical or theological attention, which is when people say something along the lines of, I identify as X or as a certain gender, or I don't identify as a gender. What do they mean by identification language? And I think there's a clue there for Christian theologians to tap into because Christian theology has a lot to say about the nature of human identity. Mm -hmm. And so with Augustine, I maintain that love or what we love, the people, the goods that we love identify our (laughs) identity. They constitute our identities. They don't identify. (laughs) So Augustine will say things like, a person's love determines the person's quality. Yeah. So I tried to expand on that view when I say that um, love is actually, for Augustine, uh, a, a genuine aspect of our created bodies. So he regularly maintains that we are created with measure, number, and weight. So if I ask you your weight, you would respond with a number, right? Yep. But if you ask Augustine what his weight is, he would say, my weight is my love. This is what he says in the Confessions in book 13. And what he means by that is that it's something like a gravitational pull. Our love is what pulls us towards the objects of our love. And for Augustine, the chief object of our love is, of course, God, right? But that doesn't mean that we can't love earthly goods. Rather, what that means is that those earthly goods are loved in virtue of of their ability to bring us closer to God, and what and Augustine is is interesting in this because, um, so I'm trying to find what he says. He he'll give illustrations of a, of a pilgrimage, for instance. So suppose you're like you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, and you you set for yourself as your goal to to hike the trail. It's a very difficult thing to do. But nobody just decides to hike the Appalachian Trail. They also set some sort of subordinate goals as well. Things like, I know I'm going to get certain kinds of hiking boots. You know, I'm going to get the right kind of water. things I've never hiked the Appalachian Trail. But I, suppose, I imagine there's a lot of work and things that go into accomplishing such a feat. And you love those goods in virtue of their ability to help you accomplish those goals. So somebody who who hikes the Appalachian Trail is going to be very grateful for the boots that they chose to wear, you know, things like that. Um, And that's kind of how Augustine views the objects of earthly love. For Augustine, God is in all of the good things that we love because God is their creator, their sustainer and their redeemer. And so God is there, for instance, when we love our kids. God is there when we lace up our running shoes to drag ourselves out of the house and go for a run because we want to love our bodies. Or God is there when we enjoy our favorite meal at the end of a long day. God is the creator of all these good things. And we love these things in virtue of God's gracious gift to us uh, in them. So how does that help me think about gender, right? And so these things then that we love constitute who we are as, as people, right? Right. I, I argue that gender is the social organization of goods that pertain to the sexed body, and this organization happens by means of our loves. Mm-hmm. Love is how we attach social goods to ourselves, and th- and certain of those social goods are going to be manifestations of our sexed bodies. Those mm-hmm. goods are going to include marriage. Those goods are, to, but they're also going to include things like the clothes we wear, and they're going to include all sorts of other primary goods, secondary goods to help obtain those primary goods. Um, so for the, the account I tried to, to forward is that gender is uh, the organization of social goods according to the sex body by means of what we love. But, now, but what I tried to, to suggest is that the reason why Christians find this really attractive is that therefore gender can be seen as an aspect of our discipleship. Mm. If everything we love is loved in virtue of our ultimate love for God, and that means our genders can be something that we learn to see in the light of God's gift, you know, and they don't have to be something that is evil, that we can work toward understanding how God has provided for us. And he hasn't left us in the lurches when it comes to gender. Gender is an aspect of our discipleship too. And so seeing it in this way, I suggest, is, a, is an interesting kind of approach that doesn't reduce social goods, doesn't reduce the body. Love is what bridges social life and the body uh, because it's very much present in both. So that's kind of how I'm trying to entangle the categories mm-hmm. um, to provide a, a Christian account of these things. So that was like 500 pages in two minutes. I hope I didn't feel too <laughs>
0: Uh, oh, I was am looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, 500 pages for your dissertation. I, I'm so, Billy Abraham's your supervisor. I'm sorry for him if that's <laughs> the case. Well, that <laughs> <funny>. so, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um, so I guess w- before we close up, maybe someone wants to follow along with, with your work. See, you know, they want to see when you're posting articles or, or if you're publishing a book eventually on this. They want to see it. Is there a place they can go to do that?
2: Yeah, I have a Twitter. I am bad at it. <laughs> but I have one, it's my name, Felipe Dovelle1 is my my Twitter handle. Uh, I had, On there, there's a link to my academia page. I think right. if you Google my name, there aren't very many people who spell my name the way I do and then, you know, talk about gender. I yeah, think yeah. Felipe dovelle that I've ever seen as a Brazilian musician. I am not that, I'm the other one. (laughs) So it shouldn't be too hard to find. Awesome.
0: Well, we we want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this was really helpful, really interesting. Uh, And I I mean, I'm always helped by people who are wanting to discuss complex, difficult topics with charity and love, and and to be just, I guess, generous and to think through issues with other with other people. Um, You know, I want to. I I think I want people to think for themselves, but I don't want them to think alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think if you want to think well, you've got to think with people who. Uh, Have different opinions than you, so this has been really helpful. Uh, I commend uh, all of our listeners to check out his Felipe's work. Uh, He's got several papers that are out there. One that was in International Journal of Systematic Theology that was on comparing, contrasting Augustine and Misa, and then the one on Can a male savior save women? And Phil Christie. And I know you've got other stuff coming out. So I'll put those in the show notes for you guys, so you can go find a copy of it and read it. Uh, We definitely recommend them. Very, very helpful. So for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only Analytics Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank
1: you for tuning in.